This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. In this week's episode of Race to Value, we will be discussing the future of health reform and value-based care with the one and only Dr. Mark McClellan, former CMS administrator and current director and professor of business medicine and policy at the Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke University. Dr. McClellan is truly a man that needs no introduction. He's a physician economist who focuses on quality and value in healthcare, including payment reform, real world evidence, and more effective drug and device innovation. He's at the center of the nation's efforts to combat the pandemic and one of the leading voices in the value-based care movement from a policy perspective. Let's now hear from Dr. Mark McClellan as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Mark, it's an honor to be with you today. You're a true leader in the health value movement on a national level. From your work leading CMS during the Bush administration, your founding of our institute, and your current role as the director of the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy, I can't think of a better person to have a conversation about the future of health reform and value-based care. But most of all, there's no one out there that I know of that's more passionate about health value than you. I'm so thankful for your service to our country and leading this important transformation in healthcare. Eric, it's great to be with you today and congratulations to you and the whole Institute team on the launch of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. It's been great to work with you and your colleagues and so many more of the people who are joining us here today on these important issues of getting more value for everyone in our healthcare system. I've had the chance to, to work with Governor Levitt since uh, we were together uh, in HHS and CMS for the launch of Medicare Part D and the Medicare Advantage Program, all about value in health plans in Medicare, and the launch of the predecessors of the accountable care organizations and other reforms. Subsequent to that, a chance to work together with the Accountable Care Learning Collaboratives and with, again, so many of you over the years in advancing this work. And we're still evolving in it. So this is, uh, we still need the shift to accountable care. That's fundamental to enabling value. And it's also fundamental, as I'll talk about, to the CMS strategy for healthcare reform 
to increase value from here. But I think increasing recognitions that while payment reform is critical, there are other essential steps that need to go along with it. And that's what I want to talk about today. I think it's a good time to reflect on uh, not only on why we're doing this, but also on where we are. Mark, can you provide your perspective on the value movement and how it's been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic? Are we now at an important inflection point for industry transformation? Where we stand now on value-based care, and in particular, some of the stresses that our system has faced in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic, which are kind of reminders of just how important it is uh, to continue this journey and maybe a new way to engage the public and I know a very tired set of healthcare providers making sure what happened, the challenges the last two years will be much better prepared for going forward. And then that'll help me lead into some of the key policy steps that I like to cover on advancing value-based care from here. We often thought about value as sort of a ratio of outcomes over spending. It's the outcomes that matter to patients. The experience with care, important as it is, the uh, experience with care is even better if you don't have to go to the hospital in the first place, if we can keep that chronic disease from progressing or maybe even intercept it uh, earlier on. And we want to do that in a way that keeps spending down. And it's important, I think we've increasingly realized in this journey to value that we need to bring all patients along. And that means explicit and intentional attention to equity and the special problems facing racial and ethnic minorities, low-income patients, rural patients, those with more complex conditions that have really been challenged in our healthcare system traditionally and particularly in the last couple of years. Can you talk more about the patient journey and why their engagement in their own health outcomes is so important in value transformation? Will we win the race to value without a whole person approach to improving health outcomes? Well, we still have a ways to go to get to healthcare that's truly from a person perspective. Now, any depiction of healthcare is going to be oversimplified, but if you think of it as a care journey or patient journey that starts with opportunities to identify and prevent risk factors from progressing, prevent diseases in the first place, to diagnosing early and intervening with effective diagnostics that can target the right interventions for a patient, sometimes medical, often not, to keep that disease from progressing further, if not to, to, to cure it or, or seriously slow down its progression. A lot of our healthcare traditionally has been downstream when a patient's hospitalized with a heart attack or hospitalized with a, a COVID complication or certainly is better care that we can provide in that context but also the upstream is very important. And then beyond that, uh, helping people with chronic conditions who might have some impairments that we can't fully reverse, supporting them, getting them the care they want and the conditions they want for the rest of their lives, engaging them and their caregivers. We still have a long way to go on where, from where we are to where we'd like to be, despite some heroic efforts along the way. Mark, could you share an example of an effective collaboration that's worked in, in improving population health outcomes and, and addressing the prevention and treatment of chronic disease? Collaboration with the, the American Heart Association that from a patient journey standpoint, tried to document the opportunities for value improvement at every step 
in the care pathway from a patient perspective, the prevention and management of cardiovascular disease. You can see there's some downstream challenges around uh, supportive care for patients with advanced to heart failure, uh, some opportunities to optimize the way that we're using cardiac procedures and make sure that they're targeted well and efficient, but also lots of upstream opportunities around modifiable, potentially modifiable risk factors like smoking, uh, obesity, and the social factors that have an impact on people's ability to work on those risk factors or even get diagnosed with those risk factors early. And then big misses in terms of how often people know that they have conditions like high blood pressure or high lipid levels or irregular heart rhythms that are very treatable today, often with very inexpensive generic drugs or some of those lifestyle and behavioral modifications and, and meeting people where they are in terms of understanding if they're having difficulty adhering to those medications, what's the underlying reason? Maybe it's because of issues with just knowing where they're going to sleep that night or uh, having being able to, to get to an appointment or, or deal with food insecurity or other problems like that. Can you speak to the major direct and indirect COVID-19 impacts on population health in our country? And how does this align with the data we're seeing with large and growing racial, ethnic, and economic disparities? One main thing that I wanted to convey was just how much of an impact uh, COVID has had. And as we all know, uh, it's really exposed some of these health inequities as well, with life expectancy falling by well over a year on average for Americans, one in 100 people over 65 died uh, from COVID directly. That's not even counting the indirect medical effects. But those numbers are much larger for Hispanic Americans, uh, non-Hispanic Black Americans with uh, mortality impacts uh, perhaps twice as large. And we're just starting to see the, the longer-term consequences of the disruptions in access to care uh, and uh, increased risk factors, not just from COVID, but from failing to do those earlier interventions in other conditions as well. It doesn't have to be that way, that uh, if you think about the, the, the arc of medical technology and biomedical understanding and awareness of the social factors, we've seen tremendous progress in moving our healthcare system from sort of not doing that great of a job providing supportive care, reactive care when diseases progress, to getting to the ability to do earlier and more accurate diagnosis, better understanding of risk factors, and better and better treatments that can intervene and, and halt or slow progression or even cure an illness. Uh, look at what's happened with COVID in the, in the last two years, where we went from identifying the, the virus, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus causing COVID, to having large-scale availability of highly effective vaccines in less than a year. And yet, even with that technological progress, we're still seeing substantial impacts of, of COVID. Uh, it's not only about the technology, it's about how we use it effectively and enabling us to get to, if we, if we can match the technological progress that's continuing to happen, look across the board, cardiovascular disease, now neurodegenerative diseases, not to mention major infectious diseases like uh, COVID, the opportunity to either prevent early or intervene early in a targeted way to help prevent uh, those care pathways, those patient journeys from progressing. And I see a lot of the work that's going on, including the, the shift of the focus on value. 
Mark, with this shift to value-based payment, we're running off of the hypothesis that there will be a parallel transformation in care delivery that is born out of necessity due to the aligned economics in providing care that's accountable for outcomes. What will healthcare organizations need to do to ensure that they successfully transform the care they deliver? And the goal here is care delivery that's person-centered, that improves those care pathways, moves them to the left uh, along the lines I've just been describing for any health problem that a patient might encounter and not drawing the line at, well, this is not a service uh, that's traditionally been paid for, that I as a healthcare provider have traditionally done, but really taking the, the focus to the person. That starts with leadership and culture in healthcare organizations. The mission needs to be about the person and the role of a, a care team and supporting that person's journey. And that requires a different kind of organizational structures, new staffing, more reliance on community health workers, more reliance on behavioral health specialists, areas where we're underserved today, and uh, new kinds of partnerships across healthcare organizations. It requires new kinds of data and supporting analytics to empower and inform uh, those providers and the patients that are working with them. And of course, all these changes in the structure, the delivery of care, uh, the organization of care require different financing, uh, financial support within organizations to, to, to manage risk or put another way to, to personalize care to include services that traditionally aren't paid for, uh, to partner with other organizations in new ways based on value and not volume, and to engage uh, the payers and the purchasers in our healthcare system to support payment reforms that align with those goals. So Mark, can you go more into depth into some of the population health initiatives and infrastructure requirements needed to actually achieve higher value healthcare? How should healthcare organizations be thinking about things like improving the effectiveness of treatments, fostering innovation through emerging medical technologies, deploying virtual care models, utilizing lower cost methods of treatment or sites of care, and improving care coordination and team-based care? And what is the role of health policy to catalyze adoption of that? Value can come in a couple of ways. One is often cost increasing, uh, effective treatments for unmet medical needs, uh, uh, new treatments for heart disease that would have otherwise been fatal, new uh, drugs or effective therapies uh, perhaps coming, maybe coming for neurodegenerative diseases in the next few years to change that from a support only condition or support mainly condition to one where early intervention targeted well uh, in management of uh, risk factors factors, both behavioral, personal, social, and uh, medical, uh, genetic, et cetera, can potentially make a difference. And unmet needs in terms of patient populations that have traditionally been underserved or, or faced structural barriers uh, to getting access to, to, to needed care. Uh, those steps often increase costs, but healthcare doesn't have to just be about uh, cost increases. There's so many dimensions to get more efficiency in healthcare by targeting the use of medical technologies more effectively. The patients who will benefit, that's where data and analytics come in, uh, by using lower cost approaches, helping a team of healthcare providers practice at the top of their game, team-based care that's better 
coordinated, moving care to, to sites that are more person-dependent, digital apps, home-based care, community-based care, supporting more costly settings, and addressing on a targeted basis the upstream non-medical factors, the, the social drivers of poor health that can lead to higher costs and complications downstream. And from a policy standpoint, while as I just talked about, these are all steps that require new learnings and new approaches from standpoint of healthcare providers, healthcare organizations, our policies haven't always gotten it right. Um, we haven't always uh, uh, paid on a basis of value for new technologies, encouraging their use in the appropriate uh, patients. Uh, we've had barriers to telehealth, to team-based approaches to care with many needed healthcare providers and community health workers not being reimbursed and and, and so on. The, the social factors influence health, that air conditioner for the family whose uh, kid has poorly controlled asthma, other interventions around addressing like uh, food insecurity for diabetic patients who are having trouble adhering to their medications and, and controlling their hemoglobin A1C. So lots of factors that often are, are not well reimbursed under traditional payment systems. And that's why payment reform has been and remains an important component of making faster progress in that achieving value and achieving equity in our healthcare system. Mark, you've been really involved with the work of the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network, or HCP-LAN. Can you speak about the role that this public-private consortium plays in supporting the transition to value-based payment in our country? The payment reform framework that was developed by the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network. Uh, for those of you who are interested in the land, a CMS supported public private collaboration that I have the privilege of co chairing along with Mark Harrison from uh, Intermountain to help uh, advance and, and support aligned efforts around payment and increasingly these supporting steps in care reform. We've tried a lot of payments over the years, fee for service doesn't align well with many of the the needs that I just described for, for new care models and, and new supports for sustainable, better pathways for patient care, pay for performance, still fee-for-service based, a little bit of a bonus or a penalty, could get maybe some improvements on whatever it is you're, you're measuring, but it doesn't allow that restructuring of financial supports in a way that's needed for these more fundamental improvements in person-centered high-value care. So, Mark, what would you say to those naysayers out there that think value-based care is a fad? It's been an area of focus for several decades, even before the inception of ACOs through the Medicare Shared Savings Program. However, the uptake of value-based payment has been slow, to say the least. Are you optimistic about the pace of the value movement right now? So we've been on this journey now for a couple of decades, really, moving away from fee-for-service, as Mike Levitt likes to talk about, and towards these more person-centered, accountable care payment systems, not just because it's important for providers to take on risk, but because paying more at the person level, not the level of traditional medical services, makes it much easier in principle to set up the kinds of care models, the personalized care models that are increasingly needed. Flexibility in how payments work 
plus accountability for results. Value at the person level uh, is really the core theme behind these payment reforms. And, you know, you know, a lot of people view it as, well, this is slow going and it's not really happening. We should just give up on that. I do think the arc of the future of medical care just bends in this direction of person-centered care. Think about it. All the personalized data, information, uh, uh, tech transformation that's taking place, all of the new technologies that are used best in combination for particular patients can make their life more convenient and better. This is the, where the fundamental pressures are. The question is just how quickly and how effectively can we get there? And what you can see is across the major payment segments in our healthcare system, uh, there has been, I would say, incremental but important progress. That's more ACOs, Medicare Shared Savings Program participants, taking on downside risk, as well as participants in other episode-based payment programs. Medicaid has also been increasing its reliance, and that's mainly through Medicaid-managed care plans, but more and more states are building in accountability and intentionality around achieving better person-level results, not just asking the question of, well, how do I get the, the, the lowest Medicaid premium through the, the, the lowest, narrowest network uh, next year, but how do I really get better outcomes for the Medicaid beneficiaries I'm serving. Uh, the progress in commercial has been uh, a little bit slower, but still upward trends there as well. So we're still very much in the midst of the journey, as, uh, as Mike Levitt has said. Um, one more point I'd like to make is around the um, importance of addressing equity explicitly as part of these efforts that starts with measuring race and ethnicity uh, reliably and then incorporating a focus on providing more support for healthcare providers that are taking on accountability for addressing uh, these gaps in outcomes and gaps in value, uh, particularly for traditionally underserved uh, populations. So an uh, important area too. Mark, let's revisit the impact of COVID-19 on our industry and how that will inform progression in the value movement. Can you speak to the disruptions we've seen in healthcare utilization in the predominantly fee-for-service environment of care delivery? And was the pandemic the black swan event that we needed to make the industry finally realize the structural flaws of fee-for-service as a payment model for providing care? One of the first things that healthcare providers notice, and this is a chart showing time uh, and hospital uh, admissions, but on the vertical axis could also be hospital revenues, primary care practice revenues, specialist revenues, at a time when we really needed our healthcare system to respond to this unprecedented pandemic, virtually every organization that was in traditional fee-for-service payment was having trouble maintaining their financial position. Now, fortunately, the federal government stepped in with some additional short-term financial relief for those healthcare providers, but for a system designed to deliver volume-based treatments paid for by fee-for-service, it still hasn't fully gotten back to recovery. Hospital admissions on net remain down. That means less access to perhaps needed specialized so-called voluntary procedures. Uh, again, I could show a similar chart with bigger remaining deficits in um, preventive services like colonoscopies or mammography screening or in the number of visits, virtual or otherwise, that patients have had for primary care services. The result is we've had a combination of disrupted finances for healthcare organizations and 
as a result, difficulty in reaching patients where they are at home, many cases afraid or really stressed by uh, other things uh, going on in their life in conjunction with the pandemic. And our healthcare system hasn't fully recovered yet. And as I mentioned, some long-term consequences, I think, to come. Contrast that with the experience of healthcare providers that had already moved farther down this pathway in terms of payment and capabilities to deliver high-value care and succeed in, in advanced accountable care models. The organizations that were further along towards advanced payment reforms, that those category four models, experienced much less revenue change. They could really focus on, on what patients needed um, as a result of that financial stability. And they were already implementing a lot of the steps that turned out to be really needed in the pandemic, home-based care, telehealth supports, uh, care team approaches to addressing um, unmet upstream needs, including food insecurity and isolation. Already, we're, we're working on all of those issues. What about the opportunity that has been posed by the pandemic in terms of consumer awareness? Patients now realize that they don't have to take a half day off of work and make a trek downtown, pay for parking, go to the doctor's office and wait to be seen. They can actually receive care virtually from the comfort of their own home. You know, Mark, how are these changes in consumer expectations due to the pandemic going to impact value-based care in the future? Coming out of the pandemic, I think the American public has a new appreciation for what care could look like. And we're already seeing it uh, in, in some places. Uh, not just telehealth delivered care from home, but virtually enabled person-centered care models that, that are convenient, that are more home-based where possible, and that are focused on some of these earlier interventions. Using technologies we have now, we just haven't optimized them because again, the traditional payment models, they don't work well, it's hard to sustain them. The remote monitoring technologies, digital um, self-care tools, longitudinal data on patient populations to identify those who are at higher risk, whether it's in managing um, uh, cardiovascular conditions, you know, patients who may not be refilling their prescriptions, who have a lot of characteristics suggesting they're at high risk, and and aren't being treated, having capacity to go out and meet them where they are, or even for COVID response uh, today, having care models that pre-position uh, uh, diagnostic tests uh, for high-risk patients, give them support and what they can do today uh, as we try to move beyond the acute phase of the pandemic that provide an easy pathway for them to test to treat um, with COVID oral therapies that are available now, not to mention being up-to-date on their vaccines and boosters. Uh, there's now growing evidence that organizations, again, that were in these alternative payment models have been better uh, at being able to identify and manage their highest risk patients through the pandemic and through all these other conditions, kidney care at home, uh, complex disease management at home, as a result of this shift to accountable value-based care. Last year, we wrote a report that Duke Margolis um, identifying a path forward. So building on this experience to recognize that this is a time when um, perhaps we should consider ways to enhance the adoption of value-based care um, through policy changes that could be implemented. So the vision here is for all people to be able to have access to high value, comprehensive care that meets them where they are and that, that emphasizes the, the, the points that we've raised. And that's about payment reform, but it's about other things too. 
I completely agree, Mark. Payment reform, however, is really creating the momentum for value transformation. It seems that CMS is stepping up in a big way by announcing their commitment to advance person-centered care and equity through their most recent strategy, Refresh. The stated strategic aim for CMS is to have all Medicare beneficiaries with parts A and B in care relations with accountability for quality and total cost of care by 2030. As a former CMS administrator, can you provide your perspective on the strategic commitment? We called on, as many others did, uh, uh, some further steps at CMS to help lead these efforts, as well as collaborations through states, through employers, through the other people in our healthcare system who are paying the bills. Well, later last year, CMS came out with a vision for their path forward for the, the future of the healthcare system. There are five key elements to this. Number one was driving accountable care. Why? It's very hard to achieve these goals of addressing upstream non-medical factors, of um, meeting people where they are, of overcoming some of those structural contributors to inequities in healthcare within a fee-for-service payment system. We're just not gonna get there. And so driving accountable care, indeed laying out a vision of by 2030, having all Medicare beneficiaries in a care relationship with accountability for quality and for total cost of care by 2030. That's the key strategic aim of this uh, whole uh, CMS vision. And similarly for Medicaid beneficiaries, for that matter, uh, collaborating, uh, partnering to uh, achieve uh, system transformation, also one of these five goals, collaborating with the private uh, commercial health plans, employers, and health systems uh, to get there as well. So very central to the the CMS path forward. And of course, the, the question is, how can we make progress as quickly as possible? So I'd like to talk about a few of the policy steps that I think could get more, continue to get some bipartisan or more bipartisan support in order to accelerate the, the progress. And again, these are areas where our group at, at the Duke Margolis Center for Healthcare Policy is really focused at the, the national level with CMS and employers and uh, other stakeholders in our healthcare system, but also at the state and local level. And so these include accelerating advanced primary care with care coordination. That's at the center of that CMS vision that I described, facilitating alignment across multiple payers and as I'll talk about that really means purchasers too, the ones who are actually paying the, 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 the bills, addressing critical gaps in our workforce, particularly in areas where we haven't had uh, enough service available. So areas like community health workers and uh, behavioral health supports, enhancing the way that we do risk adjustment if we're paying not on a fee-for-service basis but a person basis it matters to, to get those payments right uh, at the person level, improving our payment models so that we can have specialist leadership. So much of our healthcare spending is by specialists. They're trusted by people when they are in the most severe uh, needs for, for assistance from our advanced and increasingly advanced medical technologies. Uh, we're not there yet on engaging specialists in value-based comprehensive care. And then on the fee-for-service side, in many ways, it's still kind of too easy to keep doing what we've been doing, even though it's not getting the job done. It didn't work during the pandemic. It hasn't worked for so many of our common chronic diseases, including cardiovascular disease. On the primary care side of the equation, can you walk our listeners through some of the major initiatives for 
accountable, comprehensive care like Medicare ACOs, including the new ACO REACH program, Medicaid ACOs, advanced medical homes, commercial and multi-payer ACOs, and Medicare Advantage plans. I'd love to get your perspective on all those, Mark. I started out with. So how can we have a feasible path? First off, we do have a foundation now for accountable comprehensive care, starting with advanced primary care. So the, the linchpin of this in the Medicare program remains the Medicare Shared Savings Program. CMS has recently restated uh, their support for um, sustaining and improving that program uh, and even for building on it with a new version of direct contracting, the ACO REACH program that is now more intentional about physician and clinician leadership, more intentional about patient involvement, and more intentional about identifying and addressing inequities in healthcare across racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic groups. So that's over 30% of beneficiaries in traditional Medicare and the ACO REACH program re-enrolling now, expanding, again, because this is the only way to get there. It's a critical element uh, of addressing equity and of getting uh, better outcomes for patients at a sustainable cost in traditional Medicare. Medicaid programs, as I mentioned, are expanding their use of alternative payment model supports in my uh, home state of uh, North Carolina. Advanced medical homes are required to be implemented by all of the Medicaid managed care plans with a uh, state supported as a purchaser, state supported shift in Medicaid to plans and providers within those plans that are accountable for total costs and accountable for achieving improvements in chronic disease outcomes and tracking race and ethnicity in improving those outcomes uh, as well. As I'll talk about in a second, a growing number of commercial plans are moving in this direction with pressure from some of the purchasers some the employers that are paying for, uh, for healthcare as well as states as employers. And then I do wanna emphasize the importance of accountable health plans. So not every single healthcare provider needs to move into a fully capitated contract. What we're really aiming for here is payments that are aligned with the overall goal. And one of the things that we've learned over time, uh, at least I've learned from starting and then seeing uh, helping uh, Medicare Advantage to grow, uh, seeing how states and supporting state efforts to rely on Medicaid managed care plans. You know, Medicare Advantage is now close to 50% of the Medicare beneficiaries who are in comprehensive Part A plus Part B benefits. Uh, it'll go over 50% probably this year, if not soon after. And again, that's the part of the healthcare payment segment that has the highest rate of these alternative payment models. So it's a critical part uh, of getting to reform is engaging uh, Medicare Advantage plans, Medicaid managed care plans, and commercial plans with the right kinds of financial person level supports and accountability, Medicare STARS and, and uh, risk adjustment in particular in the Medicare Advantage program to enable and uh, provide partnerships for healthcare providers in getting to these accountable care models. Mark, I'd like to hear your insights on employer healthcare purchasing reforms as well. More employers are seeking to create accountability for value in health plan contracts or contracting directly with accountable primary care groups and health systems. We've seen this with JP Morgan contracting with Vera Whole Health and Central Ohio Primary Care, for example. This is sort of version 
two of Haven, um, where instead of focusing on a quick fix, a wellness clinic, uh, apps to help patients uh, get self-help for health problems they might they might have, telehealth, particularly behavioral health, a huge challenge for employers and their, and their workers and families um, right now. Each of those are important components. There's a recognition that all needs to come together for an employee as well, and that's back to support for advanced primary care and accountability for total cost. JP Morgan is doing this uh, in Central Ohio, for example, in partnership with uh, Vera Whole Health and Central Ohio Primary Care, working with other partners like Kaiser and other parts of the country. But again, showing employers, how employers encourage their health plans to contract matters a lot. Uh, CalPERS, PBGH, also implementing these kinds of reforms in, uh, in California. And it takes infrastructure support. It's a challenge for employers that are small parts of the market. What are some of the policy reforms to facilitate support for payer alignment? I'd uh, be interested in hearing your perspective on regional and state infrastructure for value. And can you also discuss some of the multi-purchaser initiatives that are underway to foster regional directional alignment on data sharing, quality measures, and specific measurable value and equity goals? Well, recognizing that it's not just the payers, but the purchasers, so the employers, the state through its Medicaid plan purchasing and, and its state employees, and of course, Medicare purchasing health, uh, not just purchasing health services, really important for encouraging health plans to align in the same direction. And many states are, are, be, are beginning to implement these steps. We can make more progress together on addressing the urgent problem, focusing on some key goals, not just the payment reforms themselves, but what are we trying to accomplish? Uh, improving maternal health outcomes, reducing uh, disparities, improving this big gap between unmet behavioral health needs and our capacity to address them, doing something about the, those increasing mortality rates related to cardiovascular disease, increasing health disparities there as well, as I talked about earlier. These are all things where a common approach to measurement can help, and then also a recognition that Healthcare providers benefit from regional and local infrastructures that are better able to support these care models. That includes timely data sharing, not all data, but maybe data when on when patients are admitted to an emergency room or have an acute health complication, maybe data on where a patient who has an unmet need in terms of food insecurity or housing, uh, where they can go to get help. Uh, so a number of states uh, and regional efforts are investing in this kind of infrastructure and making it more uh, self-sustaining. Some examples of these uh, include uh, uh, states like uh, California with its aligned multi-payer payment reform efforts. I mentioned North Carolina, we're investing heavily in our NC Cares 360 infrastructure so that providers who are now accountable in Medicaid and other programs for addressing unmet food need, food insecurity needs or, or housing needs have a place to go, have an infrastructure to connect those patients to uh, for referrals. Uh, Washington State uh, bringing together um, private uh, purchasers, employers, uh, the state, the Medicaid, the state employees, Medicaid program, many other examples of this multi-payer alignment efforts supported by multi-purchaser uh, alignment efforts and specific, concrete, feasible goals to create a better infrastructure and reduce costs of advancing these accountable care reform. In health policy reform, risk adjustment methodology continues to be a controversial topic. 
Risk adjustment can drive both shared savings and net spending increases through percentage of premium contracts. Can you speak to the importance of risk adjustment and value-based care and how we can overcome the perceived challenges of, of upcoding for additional premium allocation in, in MA plans or in the ACO REACH program? If we're paying on the basis of people, not services, you want to get those payments right. And risk adjustment has been a critical part of Medicare Advantage's shift into uh, leading the way on many alternative payment models because payments are tied to clinical conditions that are associated with higher expenditures. You can't make a lot of money in Medicare Advantage unless you attract and keep the higher risk patients, not just the, uh, the healthy 65 year olds. The, the challenge with this approach is not that it doesn't encourage uh, um, adoption of alternative payment models and, and uh, programs to really intervene these uh, chronic serious conditions and help people stay well. It's that, that it also creates, at least the way that we do it now, some pressures for higher spending. Many of the health plans in Medicare Advantage have translated those same kinds of incentives around uh, getting total cost of care below a benchmark to their key accountable care providers. But you can raise that benchmark by reporting on more conditions. Now, many of these conditions are undertreated and definitely underreported in fee-for-service. And many of these conditions may well need to be managed in, in quite different ways than they are in fee-for-service. You know, think about all the undertreatment of, of mental health conditions. But what the current system encourages is since these reports are not always tied directly to, to care improvement models and care improvement steps, can lead to two things at once. One is adoption of better care models, so maybe savings in terms of net medical costs for the patients involved along with the same or better outcomes, but also increased Medicare spending because of these additional reports. So we need to do something about this, this problem for the long-term well-being of the shift to value-based care. Um, we have a work group at Duke Margolis collaborating with a number of uh, organizations and experts around the country on this right now. Just a few uh, highlights from that work. Um, a main theme is moving from data that's collected for the sake of adjusting your benchmark to data that's collected for the sake of improving outcomes for your patients. Now, a lot of the Medicare regulations around so-called RAF scoring and audits and so forth is intended to do that, to try to make the sure that the, the payments that are being reported really are related to clinical care in some way. But there's still two separate systems typically in many healthcare organizations that are trying to do well in Medicare Advantage or in these advanced alternative payment models like uh, direct contracting, a whole staff devoted to sort of optimizing RAF as it's called, and a separate staff devoted to optimizing clinical care. We now have better electronic data capabilities where it could be possible to rely more on, at least for common conditions, the actual clinical data registries, you know, patient tracking systems for quality improvement to feed into the risk adjusters used for the benchmarks in payment. And not only that, as most patients shift out of traditional fee-for-service, remember in Medicare, most of them are not in fee-for-service uh, anymore. They're in Medicare Advantage, they're an alternative payment model in traditional Medicare. It just doesn't make sense to continue using fee-for-service claims as a basis for 
what the differential payments, the differential benchmark should be based on patient risk, especially if we're trying to address things like uh, social drivers of, of poor health that you know haven't been addressed very well at all under fee-for-service. So time to start making those, those steps towards more automated and hopefully less costly, less burdensome data collection that's just directly related to patient care delivery. Along with that, adding in a few additional uh, risk adjusters that aren't necessarily clinically related, like functional status, something we want to be tracking for patients anyway. It really matters for their care. Medicare started to do that in their post-acute care systems, could do it more generally. We've got good metrics, and, and it's something that many healthcare organizations are really trying to track because it relates to spending and obviously relates to, to, to quality of life. And then we need to address the social factors, and this is a challenging one. It's hard to do it in traditional risk adjustment adjustment systems alone because those systems are really about looking at, you know, based on historical patterns, who is expected to spend more and who's expected to spend less. And many of the individuals in this country from underserved communities with low socioeconomic status or racial and ethnic minorities may have lower spending or different spending, not because their health needs are, are lower or different, but because their access has been structurally impaired. So explicit steps to try to address that. CMS is, is, has taken some steps in that direction with the ACO REACH model. I think there's much more that could be done in terms of intentional efforts to provide upfront funding uh, for healthcare providers and organizations that are taking this on, and especially those that actually achieve improvements in, uh, in health equity measures. Again, building on the accountability steps so far. Mark, another major topic out there in the value movement that's really top of mind for everyone right now is how do we engage specialists in accountable, comprehensive care. It makes sense to focus on primary care because PCPs control upwards of 80 to 90% of the downstream medical spend. However, we need more opportunities to align incentives in the specialty arena to create a unified front in the value movement. Can you provide your perspective on how to best integrate specialty care into value-based purchasing and accountable care? Primary care, fundamental, important, uh, great source of uh, uh, overall accountability and care coordination. We need to provide more support for it. And I've described all the steps that are underway now to help make that happen, not just in Medicare, but in other programs. But look, specialized care is where most of the spending is and some of the specialized medications and so forth that are used along with it. And we haven't done enough to engage specialists in care reform. In 2020, um, uh, by our estimates, uh, about uh, 266,000 or about half of all active specialists were in an alternative payment model. That's good news. I would say that the majority of them probably didn't know it and uh, certainly weren't uh, getting what they felt like was new constructive supports in their day-to-day -day work to address the things that are potentially that they could influence in those care models, especially for patients with more specialized needs and uh, uh, more advanced conditions. I don't think most of them are really feeling like they're getting the support that they could from reforms in payment and alignment and coordination, complementary payment reforms with the primary care. Still a feeling that ACOs are for primary care providers. The good news is, again, growing examples that we can do better. Um, when individuals are enrolled or are participating in an advanced primary care model with some accountability for total costs, and also in specialized care reforms, uh, like bundled payments or episode payments, they tend to get better outcomes. It makes kind of logical sense that these payment reforms could be reinforcing and could encourage new ways of effective and efficient coordination between primary care and specialists. 
But that's still the exception, not the rule today. So what's going on to try to address this? What many primary care ACOs are doing today is trying to get data from Medicare or wherever they can on how the clinicians that they might refer their patients to, the specialists that they might refer to, are actually practicing. This is an example of a, a program that, that tries to, uh, to to support that from uh, Embold Healthcare. So very promising idea uh, for looking at not just individual claims for specialists, but how uh, specialists are treating patients who are referred for a certain problem. Uh, in this case, uh, esophageal reflux, but without complicating, seriously complicating symptoms. Turns out there are very large differences in how often uh, those patients receive endoscopy versus perhaps other steps that could be less costly and more effective for managing their condition. So one way to engage specialists is to just change your referral patterns and a lot of efforts going on around that. Embold is aiming to do more than that by engaging the specialist directly and trying to understand uh, what would lead to um, better referral patterns, maybe better use of alternative approaches and so that's a start. We'd like to build on that by changing the way the specialists can be paid to support the better models of care. This is a kind of a payment reform version of that longitudinal care pathway for patients uh, resulting from collaboration work we do with uh, Duke Margolis with um, Dell Medical, uh, Signify Health, and, and others uh, who are very concerned about these uh, specialized care issues. If you think about it, a lot of the pain reform that we've done so far involving specialized care is for what we might call a surgical episode, like an actual joint replacement or an acute hospitalization with a major medical event, like a heart attack or other uh, acute um, cardiovascular event. We had DRGs for that already. We've added in 90-day or 30-day episodes where the, the physician payment and the post-acute care payment, all of that is in a bundle and some quality measures along with that. And sure enough, um, in some cases, we've seen uh, significant reductions in spending uh, without worsening outcomes, but the savings overall have been pretty modest and there's also been some real selection issues in how these models have been implemented so far. And if you think about it, it's probably not that surprising. You know, if hospitals are already being paid on a DRG basis in Medicare, uh, there's already very strong incentives to keep that hospital stay down and avoid complications and, uh, and readmissions. So the main place that some of these savings came from was in more efficient use and less intensive use of, uh, of post-acute care. But if you think about most of the chronic diseases that we face, there's certainly room for excellence in the surgical episode, but there's also room for maybe preventing those admissions in the first place. And we've seen in example after example, in this case, in orthopedic care, if the orthopedist can shift their focus from doing excellent procedures to doing excellent musculoskeletal care management, where what's the most important thing to measure? Not the, you know, the hospital length of stay or the total cost in the, in the episode related to the joint replacement, but the patient's functional status. Functional status before surgery, functional status down the road, you get very different care models. So Dell Medical and Austin, led by Kevin Bozick, been able to reduce the rates of procedures by 30, 40%. The problem is those models are not financially sustainable under a fee-for-service payment for system for specialty care. A more person-focused payment for the specialists involved in the shared accountability for 
patients with more serious conditions that can't be managed effectively by primary or efficiently by primary care practice alone. And whether it's orthopedic care turning into musculoskeletal care or, or cardiology care and procedures turning into a cardiovascular care model or longitudinal cancer care model, think about all those cancer survivors now who need very efficient and convenient care integrated with their primary care practice. We can't get there easily without taking more of a longitudinal condition and person level look at payment reform. And again, fortunately, there are examples of these payment models being implemented today. I love how in-depth you're going in the specialist integration issue. Can you also talk about how we incorporate quality performance into the system-based bundle or PMPM payment to the specialist? As I understand, the American College of Surgeons quality program is a great model to use in this regard. There are some specialists that just need to be really good at very advanced and complex procedures. Uh, the American College of Surgeons, led by Franco Pelka, has developed some models sort of like uh, think about airline industry and so forth, where there are tons of things that get measured systematically with a continuous focus on getting better outcomes. Those uh, specialists, those surgeons would like to be held accountable for those outcomes, uh, all of them. Uh, it's all about uh, adding up to excellence in surgical care. And so uh, ways of incorporating not just uh, a, a measure associated with a surgical episode, but maybe a, a condition-based payment or a PMPM uh, for the, the surgeons that are demonstrating this systematic commitment to uh, efficient uh, specialized care uh, can be a better path forward too. Well, Mark, let's shift gears with the limited time we have left. Can you provide an overview of other policy reforms in the Medicare program to accelerate adoption of value-based care? Things like transparency, Medicare incentives to shift to accountable care models, MIPS reforms, and pilot models that are out there? We've done a lot to try to get to more transparency on prices in this country, including implementing some new, fairly burdensome and complex reporting requirements for hospitals and health plans about the net price uh, for each uh, uh, charge or claim uh, that, that they submit, making that more public. Just remember that people aren't making decisions at the level of individual claims. If we want to enable this shift to value-based care, um, we need to roll those up at the level of an episode of care, or something that's more aligned with decisions that patients and their primary care coordinating providers, their specialist providers are actually making. I gave some examples of that earlier. Making that kind of information available more systematically could be very helpful. Providing incentives and continuing incentives to shift uh, into advanced alternative payment models. The so-called AAPM bonus uh, is expiring, uh, set to expire next year. And there are a lot of uh, proposals to support implementing that. There are also some concerns about how that might add to healthcare costs at a time when we've got some really tight budgets. Another way to do it is to increase the scheduled differential that's gonna start in 2025, uh, giving bigger Medicare physician fee updates by half a percent per year to physicians who are in alternative payment models in Medicare and maybe in these other um, uh, purchaser systems too, Medicaid, uh, commercial, employer plans, uh, giving them bigger uh, updates year to year with proportionally smaller updates for people remaining in traditional Medicare. So that, that can't be a huge number, but it could be a, a 0.5%, maybe 0.75, maybe 1%, uh, something that gets bigger over time. Uh, reforms in MIPS to encourage providers to shift into AAPMs. Uh, and then we've seen a lot of examples of CMMI implementing specific focus reforms. They're trying to 
uh, in traditional Medicare, like create, addressing the misalignment between payments for dialysis in facilities versus dialysis at home, or incentives for more post-acute care as opposed to post-acute care that keeps people out of the hospital and, and uh, doesn't send them back. There's successful CMMI initiatives in all of these areas, ambulance payment, et cetera, um, that need to be scaled. CMS often faces pressure after showing that these models lead to better outcomes and lower costs, pre congressional pressure to slow it down. We need to encourage and support CMS in taking these steps to make fee-for-service more aligned with the goals of value. So with all that said, given the totality of all the policy reforms underway, what exactly is the potential pathway to comprehensive value-based care in our country? I see a good path forward here. We've got a foundation to build on with a growing number of individuals in accountable models, a growing number, I know it's not going as fast as many people would like, in accountable uh, payment models. With some attention to the kind of policy steps that I've just described, uh, we can get to that CMS 2030 vision that I know many of you share, where everyone would be in an accountable care relationship. It could be in an integrated organization where not only the primary care payments, but those specialized care payments have moved away from fee-for-service and really are focused on supporting longitudinal care models for, for patients that fully engage specialists. Um, we could have more enrollment in advanced primary care ACOs, uh, physician-led ACOs, along with reforms in the specialist payments for the specialists that they work with that are more about aligning with those uh, effective condition management and, and total cost of care and, and, and outcome measurement, as I talked about. Uh, and then more steps like through risk adjustment reform and more accountability on the health plans driven by purchasers, Medicare, Medicaid, and employers to support those plans efforts and really aligning with these goals too. So we're, we're certainly not there yet. Just keep in mind that well, we'll be well on our way, further on our way to this uh, healthcare system, a vision that, that CMS shares and that um, I think we can all get to together, hopefully sooner rather than later. Thanks for the opportunity to join you and thanks especially uh, for your commitment to, to value and to healthcare reform. Well, thank you, Mark, for your time today. I just wanted to get some of your parting thoughts maybe in the next minute or two as we um, finish up today. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about this uh, transition to value-based care and invariably, you know, I'm sure you get the question, you know, how long is this transformation going to take? You know, are we willing to, to take the necessary steps at the federal level to really take on, you know, some of the entrenched interest in industry, especially when we're dealing with the sense of testing our resiliency, you know, are we willing yeah. to make the, the, the tough decisions and will that get us to where we need to be in terms of, you know, where CMMI wants us to be in 2030 with a 100% of lives tied to accountable care relationship? Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a great question to end on. I think, you know, like I said, the fundamentals here are in the direction of value I and mean, people are, are in this country are just not going to tolerate having to get care at a hospital when they can get it at home. They're going to want access to the earlier, better diagnostics that are going to, that are coming. They're going to want to use their smartphone and, and increasingly uh, good internet to, uh, to get more of their care. And they're going to want it to be personalized. So 
that's the fundamentals. The challenge is, uh, Eric, that a lot of our policies, uh, especially our payments, are not set up in a way that really makes that easy. We have healthcare providers that are exhausted and overwhelmed, and understandably so, after what they've had to live through for the last couple plus years, uh, thanks to the pandemic and, and our difficulties in doing those early interventions and getting the, the diagnostic tests, the treatments, the vaccines, the people who can benefit the most. So totally understand the view that, you know, especially with rising costs of labor and, and uh, squeezes on the fee-for-service payments, that's also uh, not going to get any easier, by the way. Those are going to keep getting tighter. So totally understand why some organizations are giving up. You know, we can't make those investments now to, to, to transform. But the good news is, uh, I think the Institute is going to help with this, is that there are a growing number of organizations that are not doing that, that are taking these steps, at least gradually, in the right direction. I showed you the numbers to back that up, but the numbers are rising, that the payments are shifting, uh, the investments are happening. Some of it's private sector, some of it's state-backed, as I said, or a lot of it's private sector, uh, to support these better care models, and we're figuring it out along the way. So there's not a silver bullet here. I do think there's some policy steps. I went through a bunch of them that could get more bipartisan support, many that can be implemented by CMS administratively, but even that's easier to do if CMS has stakeholders behind them. So, you know, pay attention to that, uh, to the, that CMS vision and keep asking, pushing CMS. So what are we really doing uh, to, to get there by 2030? And I think we can make faster progress. So I guess I'll leave you with the uh, both the, uh, the, I'll say the glass half full or at least 30, 40% full view here that we know how to do it. And, you know, I, I was in a Republican administration when we started some of these efforts that um, CMMI was launched under a Democratic administration. There's now bipartisan support, also some bipartisan opposition to moving faster, but bipartisan support for moving further faster. And we know more than ever before about how to do it. And Eric, I'm, I'm uh, counting on the uh, Institute uh, being an important partner for accelerating that progress, challenging as it is. Mark, uh, I appreciate that, and we are here to serve. I really appreciate your sense of informed optimism. And at the Institute for Advancing Health Value, you know, we're really here to support organizations as they, they make this important shift. Thank you so much uh, for spending your time today, and so appreciate your service to our country and everything that you do for the value movement. Thanks, Eric, and, and thanks to all of you who are with us today. Uh, really important work. Take care.